Hello everybody, Alex from Martbase here, and I'll be talking today to Jonas Rin, the CEO of Nomono, a company from the Nordics that is revolutionizing the podcast industry. They are creating a hardware setup that allows you to take a portable device for recording and editing and uploading to the cloud all your podcast episodes. But we'll be talking not so much about hardware, not so much about audio. We'll be talking about how he combines and balances his life of an extreme sport athlete with the one of a very, very busy businessman. A person that has sold companies for a total accumulated value of 4 billion euros. He is our host. He calls in from his car that uh, goes to explain how busy his life is, but Really good audio quality. I mean, for a person who works on that, obviously he's taken a lot of effort to to make the best setup for the for the call as well. And we talk about his frameworks about taking decisions, calculating risks, how to talk to people, how to communicate, how to create a culture of transparency and communication, and much much more. You will see that this is a conversation from CEO to CEO, obviously. Um, these companies are way above what we could ever do with Marspace. But um, there are certain similarities there with regards to remote work or uh, having strong company cultures. And therefore, this is a very candid conversation with Jonas, and I really enjoy it thoroughly. So uh, without further ado, let's jump right into this episode. Jonas, welcome to Life on Mars. How are you doing? I'm doing all fine here in sunny Oslo. It's kind of autumn kicking in, but yeah, all good. Unusual weather, or maybe, you know, I have only been in, in Oslo for a black metal festival that's called Inferno in, uh, in April and the whereabouts of Easter. And it's either very sunny and very pleasant or extremely dark and, and, and grim and forspitten. So uh, I, I, I don't know how usual it is to, be, to have this weather over there and looks like you're calling it from a car. Yeah, my car is in my office today. Going between meetings in the Oslo Center is kind of easy to take meetings in the car. And you know, the car is pretty good because the sound isolated and you have your own space. So that's the way. But yeah, back to the weather in, in Norway, it's, as you say, you know, it's either sunny, sunny or is it kind of dark, rainy or snowy. And the funny thing is with death metal, you know, I mean, oil and gas has been the main export from Norway. And I think second one in terms of <laughs> revenue for the country is like death metal. So yeah, it's a exactly. long tradition here. Exactly. I remember there was this, uh, this conference from the, the Nordic countries in which Barack Obama was talking and he singled out one specific thing about each one of the countries. And I think for Norway he said like it's the it's the the um, the country with most metal bands per uh, per capita. So <laughs> so you're well known for that in the world. Uh, I assume. Yeah. Anyways, let's get let's get into the conversation. I was uh, obviously uh, you know, with your extensive background, it's very difficult to single out one of the of your experiences in your career. But one of the things that that strike me is your connection. You you make a lot of connections with extreme sports. And having been in rock bands myself, I see a lot of parallelisms between being an entrepreneur and enduring very adverse conditions in extreme sports or playing music, right? Um, one of them is with regards to setting goals and expectations. You're a successful entrepreneur and you have created many companies. And how do you, first question would be here, how do you set the expectations for yourself so that they are not too unrealistic, and, but you also don't want to let yourself down in setting something that's too easy because you have already done it in the past? Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, it's a very good take on it. It's a it's a balancer. If you take the the parallel to extreme sports, uh, you know, I have survived. I've done a lot of crazy things, jumping off cliffs and stuff like that. But I always taken a kind of uh, calculated risk. So, uh, and this comes from like an old mountain biker from from the U.S. called Hans Ray. He was very good on trial mountain bike. So, uh, uh, what I do is uh, it's a way of kind of visualizing where I want to go. That could be extreme sport or building a company or selling a vision. So I visualize where I want to go, uh, and then I do calculations for that, and then it's a risk taking there uh, to do it. So, so from my perspective. Uh, it's it's mainly based on, on the risk taking here, uh, but not what I call taking kind of stupid risk, um, and that is also back to understanding your capabilities uh, as a leader, as a person, but also the capabilities of the team you want to build, the capabilities that can come from the team to take on this, um, call it a challenge or opportunity, and and that's the balance when you have experienced people you can bring with you on this journey. Uh, you also are available to take bigger risk uh, because there's a strong experience and power in having experienced people with you who have done it before. Uh, and that kind of combines into the goals you set for yourself and for the team, which is back to the story you tell, for example, to a customer or to an investor. So that's kind of, at least from my perspective, how I kind of over the years have been linking that thing into, into building things. Um, Oh, sorry, broke you. Um, how do you calculate? Because you talk about calculations. Can you give a specific example of how to calculate that? Is it uh, something based on uh, the time that you're going to spend? Is it personal investment in money or the hours you're going to spend versus you know potential upside downside? Um, can you give like, a specific example, like you found recently? Yeah, uh, for me, it's more looking at the macro trends and uh, the global macro trends in the world. Uh, and try to kind of analyze and foresee an opportunity there, or at least try to kind of look into the crystal ball from your own experience, what you've done before, looking on the macro trends and in general what's going on in the world and trying to foresee where you want to be with your ambition or your vision. But that's, from my perspective, also risk-taking, but it's a calculated risk in terms of when you do this analysis for yourself or with your team, um, you also do some, some calculations on the different factors. So when you're building a company, there are so many, as you know yourself, there are so many different variables and factors. And you can't control them all. You can't calculate on them all either. But you somewhere find kind of a sense or a feeling, or you saw at least what I call a gut feeling, yeah. that you want to navigate between those factors. And I think the world being dynamic is very important from that perspective. Because you take a lot of risk, but you also have to be dynamic while you're building, while you're traveling with your team to fulfill this dream, ambition, or what you want to do with this company. And, you know, we talked about extreme sport, and I'm a big fan of skiing. And it's the same thing. Uh, when you kind of go skiing a very steep mountain, usually first you look at the mountain and try to visualize what kind of path should I take down that mountain uh, to be safe, but also to get maybe get the best powder snow, get the best conditions from taking that. And then when you arrive at the top of the mountain, you have already visualized in your brain the path you're going to take down that mountain with all the extreme risk you have along the way. But there's still factors you can't control. The weather can change. Probably had a bad burrito the day before, so your stomach is going loose as well. 
So, but then again, love that one. On the basics, when you're on the top, you have done your math, so to say. You have analyzed, and you feel like I'm not gonna die today. I'm gonna do it. But then again, there's still factors you can't control, and I think those factors add kind of the enjoyment or the adrenaline when you then go skiing down the steep mountain. But the the the, the payback is when you're down at the base camp again. Because then you can look back, you can see your tracks, and you can kind of re- kind of um, replay the experience you had while skiing. Because when you do it, you're so focused, you can't really kind of think of anything else or probably not enjoy it as much as when you're down. And for me, it's a very similarity to when you build a company, a startup. You do the macro trends, you analyze the market, you look on competition, you look for opportunities. But then when you start building, it's so important with the timing and the people you take on, the investor money you take on, what's happening in other parts of the world. So, But the way you kind of can build it successfully is how you dynamically, dynamically during the way adjust according to these variables. And, that, and that's one of the things that I think is so, <laughs> I think is very important uh, to have this open mind while they're building the company to do changes. And I guess you know it yourself, and I think I'm very paranoid, uh, but I call it positive paranoid. So it's not like yeah. being pessimistic and negative, but positive paranoid about thinking about plan A, B, C, and D in terms of, okay, if this happens, what do we do then? And if that happens, so when something comes at you while you're building your company on this path, you at least have already kind of thought of that supposedly, or we already have been thinking about that could happen. You haven't invested anything in kind of securing it will happen, but when it happens, at least you have trained your brain and your team that the you know competitor or anything else is happening along the way, and then you can fast and dynamically change that. Back to the skiing metaphor here again. You come down the mountain, you have prepared the skis and everything, you have locked the mountain, but suddenly you know there's there's a, a crevasse with like snow falling down, and then you have kind of visualized it while you're skiing that that might happen. And if it doesn't happen, an avalanche or something like that, uh, you have some chances there to to be a little bit prepared, if that makes kind of sense. Makes sense. Uh, but one of the things while you were talking, you were talking about the, um, you know, going down the mountain and with this sports parallelism, um, I have encountered one situation, which, you know, the sunken cost fallacy, right? And uh, that I find it very hard for me as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, to kind of cut down on projects or investments where I have invested a lot of time or money just because, you know, I'm so deep down into it that it will feel as a personal failure if I cancel the project, if I step down, if I if I just resign, right? How do you deal with this and what's the best way to approach it in your in your terms? Yeah, that, that's the part of the pain. Uh, that's painful, huh? <laughs> it's painful. Uh, because you got public accountability. Normally, it's not yeah. so much for yourself. It's how are people going to perceive it? Yeah. Now, that's a, that's a challenging one. Um, I usually can kind of take some step backs. Uh, and that goes back to what we learned a lot back in the days when I worked in, in, in Tamburg, who kind of adopted a pretty early kind of Google principles in terms of the culture, uh, very open, transparent culture, but also this about you know failing early and failing fast. So in the early phases, you do a lot of falls, but that's kind of things you want to do because you learn from those failures and you improve and you improve. 
so that kind of in the culture way uh, with the company and when you're building something, I think that's super important because along the way, when it comes to this challenge thing that you might invest a lot in a project and you just notice you have to close it down because something has changing along the way, uh, it, it's, um, it's, I, you know, it's from my, usually there are some opportunities around it. Uh, but then again, basically close it down as fast as possible, uh, and then continue on the other path. Uh, another thing is also when you build something, you start to see so many opportunities. So sometimes it's hard, maybe not to close down, but you know, where should our focus be? Where should we bet on the part of, for example, the market that we think is going to be the most valuable for us as well? It also means you need to stop things, stop doing things. But it's so important with that focus. Um, so uh, at least my experience, at least, is yes, it's pain to stop projects and things you invested in. Uh, but the reason for doing that is usually a very positive thing that you need to invest the time in another focus area, so to say. Yeah, because... It makes a lot of sense, especially when you are running a company in peaceful times, right? Say there's economic stability, there's a bullish market, things that we had prior to the pandemic, right? <laughs> so, but um, but you might you might even take a look at the trends, and uh, I don't know with, at what specific point in time you came up with the idea of no more uh, no mono, which is your your current company. Um, but probably you saw a positive trend in global podcasting, audio processing, AI for doing all the editing and and post production to to audio productions and whatnot. But um, let's let's take another example. Maybe you saw a positive trend in somewhere else, some other space in the market. You start developing it. The market changes drastically suddenly, but you're so invested into that project that you're like, shit, now, now what do I do with it? The market is not ready for this or the market will not accept it anymore. Regulation has changed. There's a global crisis, whatnot. Um, in this case, in wartime scenarios, how do you prepare? Maybe let's start with your team internally to to face the adversity and the bad news how often do you prepare them not too early not too late where do you throw the line yeah that will be a new experience for me to be honest but <laughs> <laughs> you haven't had to do it yet no I'm okay lucky well that, that's good yeah, that's you. good <laughs> but, you know as i mentioned a bit paranoid so of course i've been kind of playing with those scenarios awesome. in my head yeah all right so so uh, the companies I built before and the ones I'm building right now is a very open, transparent culture. So yeah. on a weekly basis, on every Friday, we have all hands. Uh, we call it Newsflash. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very open. And being also very transparent. So being very transparent to the team about, you know, the economics in the company uh, in terms of what happened in the mac macro picture, etc. Uh, and, you know, we share good news and we share bad news. So from that perspective, giving everybody the same kind of information. So that is one thing of kind of preparing the grounds, um, but also keeping almost, uh, open and honest dialogue uh, with your team and your uh, and your employees. So when, if um, bad times happen, at least it's been kind of a built up to that. Um, so you, you can't expect everybody to accept it, uh, nope. but at least you have given them a chance to understand it. Right now, so, because for me, like yeah. communication or transparency is complicated in the sense that first off, when you're a first-time entrepreneur or first time leading a company, you want to over-communicate, 
right? And you want to give all the access, all the information to everybody because yeah. you think it's positive and especially because I take it from the perspective of a completely bootstrapped uh, company like mine, not VC backed. I don't have a board. We're completely independent. So maybe some companies kind of do that, but we have radical transparency in our company. But then we have discovered throughout the years that this generated too much noise in the communications, right? And people sometimes want to tone down the communications and it's about sending the right kind of information at the right time and the right measure. Because if you over-communicate too early, maybe you're preparing them for something that will not happen. So you have to also, it comes down to calculating costs. And I think that's really difficult to to manage from the perspective of a CEO and maybe having co-founders really helps. But um, in terms of maybe you've got some experience regarding extreme sports that have also ties to these kind of situations where you want to prepare your team. Look, this is going to be very rough. The sea is not smooth for sailing, right? Um, Can you give us like some tips that you do to prepare them upfront? Like, hey, you know, be super blunt with this or... Uh, commit to to disagree what kind of strategies do you have with this yeah i think you're touching like the art of being a ceo or being at least a founder Uh, because what you say there is i have kind of experienced that in every company and it's a challenge there to uh, be you want to always be transparent but information sharing you know uh, to balance that and as you say in the beginning you're a small team you share and talk about everything but then along the lines, you know, somewhere you need to balance uh, in terms of for the timing, what information to share. Uh, but yeah, going forward as well, when you see things happening or the risk, it is uh, to be honest about the information you share. But also, once again, it's the balance, how much you share as well. Uh, but it's also, it's so important, this thing, because it's kind of back to the company culture you're building and the trust you're building. Uh, and you have to be transparent, you have to be honest, and you have to share information. Uh, if you in some way doesn't do that, it can start to be a bit kind of, um, yeah, you can start to question, you know, are they sharing everything? They can start to be also be paranoid and suspect around it. And as you say, on the other hand, if you share too much, it might become noise. But I'm from the principle that I hire very skilled, talented, smart people. Uh, and they're also back to their own responsibility to understand, okay, I have all this information. But I know what my focus area is. So thanks for the information, but I will focus on this. And that kind of brings back to the other level about, you know, vision, uh, mission and execution statements. Uh, And those things are soft, but very important because it goes back to in your team, have an understanding on where the vision is, the mission, uh, but also the execution they're doing. Because I think we all, especially in startups, why do we join a startup? Why do we want to build something? Well, uh, it's not like a nine to five job, uh, and it's not just direct. It's more like a lifestyle, and you're kind of motivated on working with skilled people on a journey, and probably high pace as well. And that goes back also understanding the code I'm writing or the mechanical design I'm fixing. It has a bigger value. So understanding all the, for example, developers that the sum of its parts, the sum of the code is much more valuable than the code that I'm self sitting here and writing because that's an execution, that's a deliver to the bigger purpose of the of the company. Uh, so you have to understand, uh, take part, and of, of course also believe in the vision and the mission of the company and by that also be motivated in your code. And when you have that in place, then it's much more easier to share a lot of information 
because it goes back to each employee understands their focus. Um, so, but yeah, I agree with you. There's always this always is balance. It was a challenge, and people are different. Some get very tainted, and somebody doesn't care. So it's it's the balance. But I think if you core kind of build that culture of trust and information, and that people understand the bigger purpose of what we are working on, uh, because you want people to be kind of self-led, uh, and and and. And we can talk a lot, a lot more about you know how you set that up in that culture base, how you work with different teams, etc. But I think the main purpose here is that each and one in the team have a good understanding on what the deliveries are, and by knowing that, they also can take on more information, but not get too much noise out of it or get distracted. And what I've also experienced by having that, giving suddenly you get people working on a different part of the solution. Maybe being engineering, but hear a lot of things about the market and the and, and the sales can also come up with suggestions, ideas that is not related to the discipline or writing code, for example. But they know somebody or they've been thinking some or read something that kind of gives more value back to the company as a whole. I'm not saying that the developer is going to work on it, but there's a path for them to share what they've been thinking of information directly to somebody, for example, working on on, on the business side or on the sales side. So that is also some of the the positive I see of that information sharing. Uh, so right on, yeah. But I think there's it's like there's one part here. Even if you hire super talented people, even if you've got a company culture as super strong and believe in transparency and radical communication or whatnot, there's a challenge that is called communication uh, information asymmetry, right? In which there are certain parts of the a company or numbers or trends that you've got in your head and maybe you fail to communicate, maybe you don't even know that you have to communicate it or maybe you can't downright communicate them because it's you're selling the company and therefore you cannot tell the, the entire team or you just communicate it to the leadership team and you want you don't want this to trickle down to the rest of the company. So in this case, I think that as a CEO, you have to balance the Okay, let them take decisions, even though they are not 100% informed, because I know something's better than them. And maybe how the difficulty here is how to pick or how to calibrate their answer and put it into action, taking into account that they are not 100% informed. You know much more than them, but you still want to let them have their say. Because otherwise, maybe they will suspect that you're selling the company or you're going for a big round or an IPO or something, right? I think that will be very extremely difficult. I don't know if you've been in this situation, but it's it's hard. I, I agree with you. So, so with that key information, that's kind of sensitive in terms of, as you say earlier, also creating noise and, and, and can also disturb the focus at the moment in the company. So then it's so important to be very strict, like in your small uh, leadership team to have a discussion together with the board um, because there are different steps there. You need to land things, etc. Um, so, yeah, uh, I agree on that. Uh, what is also important, I'm, I'm go going a little bit back to the culture piece, but I think it's linked sure. to this one as well. And that is uh, with the transparency and information sharing, uh, you want them, please, to have trust for, for the CEO and for the management team. So Correct. you want to come in a position where they trust you, like, Whatever they do, they do what they think is best for me and the company. Uh, because that also puts a relief on the employees that they can focus on the work they do because they get into a position where 
we uh, CEO or management team is kind of taking care of the employees. So, for example, when you come into a position, like you mentioned, an exit or you're going to do an M&A and sell the company, which mostly is, is, is a negative uh, for, for the employees because you've been building something, but suddenly you, exactly. come, to, suddenly you come to a crossroad or you can call it a luxury problem, you know, because somebody think what you built is so valuable they don't want to acquire. They want to pay several million dollars for what you've done and your team. So the importance there is the way how you can involve your employees in that decision in terms of how you can communicate uh, potentially the positive side of it. Uh, and myself being through three acquisitions uh, and and I've learned like I have the same experience the first one like oh why are you going to sell the company why why is that you know we are on a good projector right now and we kind of we have almost no competitors because we do so good products and what have you and suddenly one of our competitors going to want to buy us um the positive side of it was one thing is of course the financial part for the employees and the people involved when a company get acquired but I've also experienced most of the people are not financially motivated because they're more motivated on the journey of building something and Correct. including myself 100% so, yeah so what is then more important is that with this acquisition usually whatever solution you worked on can have a broader spread I mean there are more people that can use your solution there's more people that will have this good experience of the things you develop because usually acquisitions happen about taking what you built and expand it even more Usually a bigger player that want you know to implement your product into their portfolio or want to extend whatever they have of solution today with, with what you are innovated. So from that perspective, uh, kind of next phase for you and your team is that more people will experience the things you built, and there will be more people having a good um, enjoy out of what you're building. So, but then again, yeah, uh, and you see also that after acquisition, there are a few people leaving, and I think that's a natural of the beast. So, uh, and. What happened in, in my area, in my experience, was we had a very good acquisition, the first one. Uh, talk about the uh, Tamburg and Cisco one. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people staying. Uh, but there were a few entrepreneurs that felt like, hmm, I probably even start something on my own. And when you look back right now, I remember the politicians said, like, you know, Norwegian technology is being sold out to the US and what have you. Uh, but if you look now, <laughs> years later, I think it's from the acquisition, I think it's around 15, 16 new companies companies yeah exactly new entrepreneurs new and that created so many more jobs in the area plus you becoming they talk about the video value but becoming a kind of a hub or center for for technology where there's an also i mean people moving not so much but some people are moving around between these companies with their competence and experience which also improves the value and and, and the success of these companies and it's also becoming the network uh, effect of it as well so, um, and, uh, you know, with that first big acquisition, with all that money coming in, that would not probably have happened. So that's also not a positive side of, of, of an acquisition that, you know, there'd be new companies created. And, and, and as you, know, I think we learn along our lifespan, there's different phases in life and there's also different phases with the company. And we people, different parts in our life, we probably suit in different areas of the company. So a younger me, I was working in big Swedish companies like Ericsson, Sony Ericsson and Volvo. And I enjoyed that because it was a big company with a lot of experience. You can learn a lot. But the older I get, the more interested I become in kind of starting something from scratch 
the experience you get, the adventure you get of it, the risk taking, the motivation of it. So you kind of, and but that's different for different people, uh, and that goes back to my parallel in, in companies as well. And as you know yourself, there, there's not the kind of a set form of people starting companies, but I think there's a red thread there. You know, several books about this, but there's a red thread about calculated risk taking. Uh, you have some motivation, or you want to prove for yourself or for the world that you can create something. And for me personally, starting companies is is about this uh, excitement of building something and building it together with very good friends and also be able to go global with it. So kind of the proof point is to be able to do something successful. Uh, but the key thing is building. And if you do it good, yes, that will have positive effect on financial and what have you. But I think at least for me personally, the big thing is to build something together with people. And yep. and, and I think, it's, I mean, they have parallel to American football or soccer football or whatever, but, but there's so, I mean... <laughs> Doing something together with good people and great people—that's kind of the best experience you can do. Uh, I totally hear you. When uh, so today we woke up to a couple of really good news in the Barcelona startup ecosystem. So uh, Factorial, an HR um, company, raised 120 million from Atomico in a Series C, and uh, Cantox, a B two B foreign currency exchanging platform, has sold to BNP uh, BN Paribas for 120 million as well. So. This is really good news for the ecosystem because big acquisitions and big financial rounds create new angel investors and new companies, right? People quitting the company, they cash out, they have vested their, their shares, they probably get, I don't know, 100 grand or 50 grand to create their, their new company. However, there's one thing in which I disagree for uh, with what you've said. It's like, uh, the, you 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 say that you tend to believe that the, the older you get, you like more the risk-taking uh, in creating new companies. However, uh, it seems to me that you're well off in in having sold a couple of companies for you know and or, or three acquisitions you have found. So that risk, actually, I I don't know how that really ties to act being an actual risk. So you create a company, but you have probably a big safety net that entrepreneur first time entrepreneurs don't have because maybe they don't come from a wealthy background they they haven't had an acquisition or something like that right of course there's the risk that you can like uh fuck it up and lose this uh half a million that you have personally invested into the company i don't know real numbers but i'm just saying but uh but seems to me that if your company went well i didn't go well it went uh, uh, belly up then you could have so many other alternatives in the in in your career whereas first time entrepreneurs if they fuck it up they're doomed forever right they they will have this stigma um so i i i don't know i i've got the feeling that that uh there's something there's something there but you want you want to you want to you want to share your perspective no no so yeah that was my personally but i i agree with you and i see uh, the young people we hire the motivation to have because if you look now right out of university um, most of the young people are, are keen and interested to join a startup. Yes. And that goes into being able to kind of, I wouldn't call it dictate your own future, but to be involved in something. Uh, versus yeah. back in the days when you, like where I come from, <laughs> the old the old regime where you went into the big companies. That's yeah, the that was so the I, only way There was the only way out of university, right? Start working for exactly. a big corporation. Exactly. I started at Deloitte, so <laughs> there were no startups <laughs> back then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I agree with you on that. So that's, and yeah. that's also a shift. So that also goes back to what I've tried to mention about, you know, the different phases for the company suits people over different kind of where you are on your lifespan as well. Uh, so exactly. if you look today, most commonly, a lot of young people, skilled people, they join a startup or 
they become their self-owned founders and entrepreneurs as the first. And there's so many also schools where they have these entrepreneurial programs they can take. So they really start in school to build their company. So, mm -hmm. and I think that's an awesome kind of development happening as well because you well, learn I mean, so much. Yeah. And it's, uh, but as I say, you probably also have to do belly up sometimes to, to get some experience as well. Exactly. Um, How do you calculate? Like, there's one thing that I want to circle back quickly to, to taking decisions because we've been touching very briefly upon. M&A or very critical uh, decisions in wartime processes in fundraising and maybe approaching big corporations for a sales process and whatnot. And there's a difference between uh, extreme sports or maybe playing a concert in which you kind of just stole the decision for a day or two or a week because you need to to ponder on it. You need to sleep on it and say like, oh, I'll, I'll give you an answer in two days. I need to go back to my board, to my co-founders, and then I'll come back with, with an answer. If you're skiing down very fast uh, on, you know, on, on, on a mountain and you approach something, you got to take decisions, immediate decisions and fractions of a second. Uh, what is your approach or your framework for taking decisions or avoiding to take um, risky decisions based on, you know, having not enough information? Because I think that's that's a necessary skill. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good one. Uh, I think over the years when you built up experience, I think I mentioned gut, gut feeling before. So that's I think is a part of it. Yes. Uh, But someone, sometimes, as you mentioned, some of the decisions are too big for yourself to just to go with your gut feeling or take a blink response or do kind of a, a big decision. And you want to ask for more time. Uh, and I, I mean, honestly, for me, it's just been going honest back again, you know. Thanks for the offer. Thanks for the interest. This is so important for us. And this is such a high value. So with the respect of this decision, we need more time. And... I never kind of reacted that somebody says, no, you don't get more time. So it's kind of, yeah. because back again, you have to respect the decision you're going to take. How big is it? How big impact has it? And you have to think about the team you have with you. You have to think about the investors and what have you and the customers. And also you have to think about the ones on the other side of the table, you know, why is this interest? And my experience, these interests, if you talk about M&As, for example, um, those come over time. Usually it's a longer partnership. They seldom come out of the blue. Uh, so at least you have some sense, at least uh, some antennas out that it could potentially happen. So, uh, but yeah, back again to, 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 to the ski and, you know, navigating at high speed. So you have to go with your gut and the gut comes from experience. So if you don't have the experience and if you have a bad gut feeling, Uh, or, you know, make a bad decision, you probably hit the wall and hurt yourself. Uh, as long as you don't kill yourself, you can come back again. You know, you go to the hospital for a while, you get it <laughs> fixed together, and then you can have a new. But that's also kind of my experience as well, you know. I Do you know where your edge is? I think the only way to know where your edge is, being skiing or building companies, is when you fail. Yeah. So, like, you know, take skiing once again, for example. Example: If I've been skiing for a long time, I haven't fall over or hurt myself. Well, then probably I haven't been pushing my limits hard enough. Correct. Yeah. Back to the point again: the older I get, the less I push my limits. Because if I hurt myself now, being 45, I'm probably away <laughs> weeks a month from skiing. Versus when I was younger, I could fall over and still kind of continue skiing that day. So 
that's back to the <laughs> to the body and the human evolution in terms of that. But uh, the key thing here is that where do you push? And back to startup, you know. If you never fail, you're probably not pushing it hard enough. The question is, though, when you do that fail, when you get that, you know, somebody not investing money in your company because X, Y, and Z, that's where you learn. So I usually say that that, that pain fosters creativity. Uh, and also, it's a, I mean, I think pain is the best way of learning. I think that's a little bit how we are programmed as humans. So, and that's what you, when you do build a car, you have to be prepared. It's going to be painful. But you have to take that pain to be positive. You shouldn't dig yourself down or, you know, kind of paint everything uh, very dark. Because that pain is a way for you to learn uh, and be better and adapt. So, yep. Now, one of the, I knew we were exactly coming to this point uh, because <laughs> um, there's something that you have to say that the older you get, uh, the less risk you take. And precisely, uh, The if you're creating startups right now, um, you need to take more risks because I, I think that like the, the 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 older the wiser you get, the more experience you accumulate, then that creates you more bias towards what actions you can take, right? And maybe a lot of people are, are or some people are successful in their first time because they are not constrained or restricted by by the things they do not know. If you if you follow my my reasoning, right? They are so yeah. naive that they don't know they could fail. Therefore, they just try it, and they are successful. And you're like, "Fuck, I'm ten times wiser than this person, and I, I'm I'm screwing up just because I'm I'm not taking enough risk or because I know too much about business, right? How do you prevent yeah. yourself from from falling into this if you, if you do it? Yeah. I think it's uh, it's two sides of it. So one is with experience, you know how to set things up in general when you build a company to avoid the first mishaps and what have you. Yeah. Focus on the money spending, stuff like that. Uh, but then you're coming to the part number two as you probably targeting, you maybe become comfortable or, you know, you start to say like, we've done that, we've done that before, you know, so we should go their way. And I think for me at least, that's where uh, I say uh, the young people come in. Uh, and have them challenge because the way they use the tools, daily tools in work and stuff like that, probably is very different what I did in that age a few years back in time. So they are taking on things that I might not do. Uh, I have kids as well. They use other tools that I do. But being open, including them, you also get challenged. And by being challenged, there's something happening in your brain. You're like, hmm, that's true. Maybe we should go I'll check that out, uh, or we should take that risk, do something. So I think that comes. But also, uh, one thing for me to challenge myself is going into different market or different segment. Uh, and also, my experience, every time you build a startup, yes, you have some experience, but it's it's a new setting. There's new people, there's a new market, there's a new... So it's also almost like starting from uh, from, from, from from the beginning again. And I think that's also good because that also creates a very respect for the journey you're starting with those people and with that new journey you're doing. Because if you go starting like, yeah, we've done that before, we're going to do that like this, and yeah, we're just going to copy-paste the way we did before and this, I don't think that's so motivating for myself or for the team. Because then suddenly they feel it's just going to fill some shoes that other people maybe <laughs> walked in before. 
and and, and I think that's also a, I think that's a recipe for mistake as well. So yeah, respect for the company building, you have to also to challenge yourself to kind of rethink things to start from the beginning. However, though, you have a backpack with experience where you know at certain timing of the company what you need to have in place to secure uh, not the, not the failure at least as possible, or at least avoid uh, some classical hiccups. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Love that answer. Um, uh, let's take a few minutes to to talk about your current company because it's I find it very, very disruptive. Um, I'd like to hear more about the what do you think the future holds in store for podcasting? Because there's been a lot of people who have jumped into the cool wagon of, of podcasting throughout the pandemic, myself included. Right? We started the podcast because of the pandemic because we we have been organizing events for nine years, an event that's called Startup Grind in Barcelona. And because of the restrictions during the pandemic, we couldn't do it. And we thought, fuck it, then let's create a podcast. That was an idea that we had for many, many years. And that was the right moment. And lo and behold, it's working out pretty well. And I think that because the relevance we built with the events, and we had an existing community for seven years already when the pandemic struck, our podcast has not taken off from zero let's say it's taken off from a different level of altitude, right? Uh, Because we had already a following, but a lot of people started podcasting with no community, with no brand, with no prior experience. And so with a lot of notes, a lot of boxes to check. And so now we're seeing that a lot of the podcasts that appeared there, they're dying. And therefore there's a consolidation in the market. Um, Maybe where podcasts are not buying each other. They're just like dying out. Uh, what's uh, what do you think? Like the the industry will um, will hold in store for like you know now Spotify going to podcasting consolidation in in some of the biggest players for podcast hosting and uh, processing and whatnot. Yeah, that's a very I long question. I know. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's start to answer a piece of it at least. So exactly, I think um, <laughs> yeah. So podcasting is going through this classic evolution as other formats has done before as well. So as you have a creator market, you have an indie market. Anybody can do a podcast. You can take any mic and you know do any. And you know you hit the nerve somewhere and sort of get your followers. Uh, the thing though with podcasting is that it's been so um, distributed, but also so disconnected. Uh, and I think. One of the things there is the challenge of doing a good podcast. Uh, so you as a person or a team need to have something very compelling to tell or create. Uh, you also need quality on that. I mean, we in Nomona work on the audio quality piece of it, which we think is super important. And we think it also is. it's going to become even more important because going back to looking on macro trends, what's happening over the last years, I mean, uh, while podcasting has existed as a format since Apple started it, it's like now we're listening to everything through the headphones. And through the headphones, we're getting more experience in a seat that you use the latest uh, AirPods Pro, which has spatial audio in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's not so much content yet in that. And we foresee that podcasting is probably the most suitable uh, media format or platform for spatial audio. Yes. Because there's many aspects, but one of them is that you have headphones. So you have all the voices and the audio inside your head. And that becomes a s- more sensitive because it's so immersive, it's so personal. But the thing is, usually today when we listen on podcasts, it's usually mono, maybe stereo sound, but that doesn't really paint the full immersive picture of what you're listening on. And it can be as simple as just hearing 
voices from different locations, just like you do in the real world. When you meet people, it's part of the experience that you hear where the audio come from. So that's something that we, with our solution, make it very easy for anyone to do, which is today very challenging to do. And that enables what you already have in your consumer products, what you already have in place in your AirPods, which calls spatial audio. And that is something we foresee at least is going to come even more uh, with the Dolby Atmos format, MPEG-H and what have you. I know even I think today Dolby is uh, holding a free webinar how to create podcast Dolby Atmos. And that goes back to, once again, storytelling. It's so important. And we enable that for podcasts. And we think that's going to come even more. Uh, think about true crime podcast, where you hear the story being told, the voices. It means like radio theater. But exactly. Also, but when you listen to today, some of them are really good productions. There are a few. But those productions, they are very complex and they're very cost heavy. That means that a person who wants to start doing true crime podcast uh, in their garage or in the neighborhood, so to say, to tell stories from from that starting point and get up to true crime podcast you hear on Heart Radio or I mean NPR, it's a giant gap. Both in what you need of experience to understand the audio, what you need of equipment, and what have you. So what we do is we enable that person, that creator to use our solution and get up on that level with just a push of a button. So that's a key thing uh, that we then provide any creator to create high quality content. And when they have high quality content, the idea is it's more easy for them to attract listeners because when you start to listen to that podcast being a 30 minutes or two hours, whatever, at least you're not going to be distracted by bad audio. You're going to have a good audio experience. I think that's a good starting point, especially when you have it in your head. But also when you get into that position, and as you mentioned, how the market is kind of changing in the way that uh, podcasts with a lot of followers or listeners that are being drafted into behind paid walls or paid services, like you have Spotify and, and etc. And and, and as, for, as for creator, if that's of the interest, they got an opportunity now to be able to maybe make it as their profession or even get earning money from doing podcasts. But then on the other hand, you have the people who doesn't care about that. They have, uh, like where I live, we have the local soccer team on a weekly basis do a podcast about the local soccer games. Oh, so nice. It's, it's very nice. But, you know, the interest is maybe maybe 2,000 people. Yeah, There's exactly. No but then again, for them, having our kit and being able to do that with just a push a button. Because what we have seen, you know, why we're building Nomono is that the majority of the people and the creators that we're targeting, uh, they have no audio experience or they have little. And audio is, I would say, and that's why we, we started Nomono and why we're on this journey is, and my motivation is that audio is, uh, creating good audio is really, really hard. There's, and I mean, you're sitting in your studio, you have a microphone and everything. But, you know, what about the room acoustic? But, but, what about your distance between your mouth and the microphone? You're one person in that room. But, you know, if you have two persons, two microphones, those microphones are bleeding between each other. And, yeah, and exactly, the wiring. Exactly. And, you know, even if I come into that room, probably you need to tell me how I should kind of operate or talk to the mic, like mic technology. So, But that's still a set scenario in a room. It's a pretty controlled environment, but still it's really hard and challenging. 
and probably need to do a lot of things after recording to fix the audio. And if you take that one step further, as you go outside the room, you go into the field where people usually are. Then there are so many factors you don't control. Noise, wind, uh, etc. But also the human factors. The people you're interviewing, the people talking, you don't have control over them, how they're going to react, how they talk. Are they making a lot of strange noises when they're you know, talking? Have you been not drinking water for a while, suddenly creating this uh, noise? So all of those factors we are taking control over. So you, as a podcast creator, can just use our solution anywhere, push a button, off you go. And the flip side, you also get it ready for spatial audio. If you like, you don't have to. So we kind of think of putting superhero powers, you know, in the creator's hand. And that's also plays on what we foresee as the trend with the podcasting, becoming uh, higher quality uh, and being behind paywalls or not. It's not our business, but we see at least it's a motivation on the creator side that, you know, I can earn money if I get high quality on my story, my interviews, but also the audio. And that kind of gives an opportunity to potentially come into some of the uh, professional uh, streaming services, for example. Exactly. Um, one of the challenges, because I learned this the hard way, right? I didn't invest a lot when we created a podcast. It was like, okay, let's create this MVP of a podcast and I'm yeah. just going to record it with the AirPods and with the computer, a webcam and whatnot. And uh, the result was pretty horrible, right? But it's relatively cheap to upgrade your equipment to make it sound Good enough, and for most people, you you will tell me because you, obviously you have uh, you have addressed the market correctly, and and you know it from all your prior prior experiences as well. For most people, good enough is good enough. They don't need the super extra high quality audio in podcasting unless it's that podcast, that true true kind of podcast. But for the other seven podcasts they listen to, most people listen to podcasts while commuting, while driving, at the gym, walking down the street, where you. Don't want to. You don't want to cancel the outside noises. You don't want to go with noise uh, canceling like uh, the the things that uh, AirPods have, and you definitely want to just have something in the background like the radio while you're doing this other thing, right? So, I don't know. You there's something I'm missing out on, but uh, um, probably you're targeting more high end, um, bigger um, audiences, higher spend on marketing for the top tier. Uh, podcast, which I believe that they will become the the new Netflix, so to speak. But another one of the challenges in in which uh, I I struggled on is that most podcasts, if not all of them, they have this um, they don't have a co collaborative mindset, and they perceive you as competition, right? Just because you started your own podcast, right? And you try to cross promote, you try to invite their co their host to your program, and so that you can go to theirs. And all of them, all of them, they say no, right? Because I'm too busy with my own podcast. Uh, they may, they don't say it, but probably they feel like they are trying to steal my audience and whatnot. And I don't know, man. Like, I, I really want to get your opinion on how to make podcasts and podcasters more collaborative over time, because otherwise we're all screwed. We're trying to get a really small piece of the cake, each one of us. Yeah. That, that that's a good question. Uh, to be honest, I haven't thought so much about that uh, challenge uh, or opportunity, so to say. Um, so uh, I can link it a little bit. Uh, maybe this is a bit off phrase, so correct me here. But you know, um, going back a little bit to Nomona, so I talked about audio quality, but yes, that's important for us is the workflow 
So what is built in our solution is a cloud solution where you can do collaboration. Yeah. So that means like when you and me have this podcast, you can easily invite me before you have done your audio editing and everything. I can just with the link come in and listen to this recording and make comments and go, hey, Alex, what I said here, could we elaborate more on that? Or can you take this? So it's also a collaboration piece. So linking that to your kind of question, um, it's also interesting uh, how podcasters can also work together. Um, but it comes back, you know, what was the benefit of it working together? Uh, and as you say, you know, uh, how, how, how can you, uh, yeah, how can you, um, yeah, how can you kind of make more value uh, of, of, of working together with other podcasters than working on your on your own, for example? Uh, but to be honest, I haven't thought so much about that challenge. Me personally, though, if I could, I would of course go the path of you know inviting, make building relationship, building friendship, you know, find at least some some common nuggets that you're interested in, and you know, yeah. see. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, as you say, you know, it it, um, it could be a challenging space to be in, especially when the podcast with very similar uh, audience or at least similar kind of tone of voice. Uh, and I, you know, think of myself as a listener as well. Uh, I kind of start to listen to one podcast, think it's interesting, and then I start to search a similar one. Let's say it's inside startup, you know, ex- people experience from startups and what have you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have life on Mars. I like that. I listen to that. But then I start to, you know, are there other kind of similar podcasts that I'm missing out that I should listen to? And there you have your challenge. You know, if I'm switching over to start listening out, will I be listening to two in the same kind of area or same topic? Or will I, yeah. will I make a choice? And what do I base my choice on? Is it, One of them is audio quality. Definitely. It is the quality. You know, what, what, what kind of people are they having interviews with? The people they interview, you know, the questions they ask, and like similar to what we talked about that the host the people, most of the yeah, time. Yeah, the too. host will they find interesting, and I think yeah. the host is so important—the voice of the host, but the way the host can make the the guest uh, elaborate. So, and that's what I like with your podcast, <laughs> where you. you don't have a set of questions you need to come through, because uh, I like the piece where it's the dialogue, and I also <laughs> back in, I like to know some some part. I, I, uh, it's exciting to know uh, to not know where we end up, so to say. Yeah, it's a you journey. You have some ideas. You have some ideas. I don't know about your ideas, so I'm just in for the joy of it and the journey. Um, so, but then again, that's different between different guests, I guess. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you, like you know. Yeah, because you know, uh, I use I well, you, we organize this event, uh, start branding, which I interview people, and for the first year and a half, I used to have my set of questions, yeah. and it felt so scripted. And sometimes, you know, the, we were drifting towards another part of the company. We were, say, we were yeah. talking about hiring. And then the speaker said something like super interesting in terms of company culture. And I felt like I was forcing them back into my script because, oh, yeah. but yeah, very interesting. But here's my next question, completely unrelated to what you were mentioning. So I said, fuck that shit. And uh, after one year and a half, I decided to drop the script. And guess what? It was way better. Because then you take me there, I will follow you there. I will try to come back if it makes sense, if it's not relevant to the people in the audience, if I sense that uh, it's maybe more esoteric and not so yeah. not so material. Um, but it will it will make you feel ten times better because yeah. you don't feel like you're being attacked with questions. Yeah. 
One last thing before we wrap it up, because I know we're out of time and I want to be very, uh, very, very, very uh, sensitive with your time, is that the last question of this podcast is you got to share one of your technological fuck-ups. This is a technological podcast. And is there any technological fuck-up, can be product, can be design, can be coding, can be management that you can personally own up to? And uh, please, it cannot be I hired the wrong people. Everybody says that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, let's go back into the archive and see what we can find. I think there's a lot of smaller <laughs> and bigger fuck-ups there. Uh, <laughs> but I have to tell one was really, really good. So this goes back into the Tanberg days. So we built the first immersive telepresence rooms. This is highly advanced video conferencing rooms. Um, and we're having the first customer visiting us to see this and it was a big telecom customer really big um while we were demoing our prototype it catched on fire oh <laughs> so you're standing oh, sorry. there with sorry the whole team. I should, yeah. do it standing with your whole team we're working with this for two years uh, <laughs> and suddenly everything goes well and it's catching fire what happened was that we had some early pcb uh printed circuit boards uh, we didn't have any isolation, so some of the engineers put some uh, paper no. between the aluminum like outer shell of that product and the PCB. Yeah. But during the demo, it got warm, and somebody was pushing it, and it pushed the connector through the paper. Yeah, and it kind of boom took fire. So that was they bought twenty of these products two years later. So we had <laughs> we had a common experience, but yeah. Standing there, seeing things catching fire, and go like, "Okay, what the hell would you do now?" So you know, keep <laughs> calm, no problem. Just go out the door here. And, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Video conferencing on fire—that could be a great, great uh, title for this. <laughs> yeah, two years, sixty people, hundred million knock. I mean, ten million dollars, something like that. And you go like, "Fuck." Yeah, that always happens. Anyways, Jonas, thank you very much for your time and for your experience. One last minute for you to say, how can we help you as a person or Nomono as a company? What can we do for uh, you? Yeah, thank you very much. No, how we can help me or us is and Nomono is to kind of go back to your role in this, being a podcaster. Uh, I think you have some lot of challenges with the microphones and stuff like that, but also the way you work with it. Um, so, so one question I would ask back to you, have you noticed a difference on people when you just sit around the table and talk to them versus when you bring in front of them, the gear, like the microphones, do you see a difference in their reactions or the way they talk in a dialogue? Um, I guess I'm biased because when I interview people, so I guess the difference is if you're just having a, off, a, a casual meeting or even a business meeting, you're not recording it versus when I interview people, be it on the podcast or in our offline events, um, they, I, I, I guess they are much more uh, thinking about what they're going to say because it's going to be recorded, right? And so they think things twice and they're very conscious about like, I can say this, I shouldn't say that, this is not disclosable and whatnot. And one other thing, and maybe that's more of a technicality and you will know it, of course, is that 
people don't know how to fucking talk into a microphone, right? You give them a handheld microphone, because sometimes depending on the venue, we get, we have that. And they, they just start to take them away from their mouths until you don't hear anything. And then you have to constantly remind them of, hey, can you bring your mic closer to your mouth, right? Yeah. Of course, then you've got these other mics that, that stick to your to your clothing and whatnot. And then people just switch to the other side <laughs> because they're directional. They don't catch the audio. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of technical challenges. And I guess that's one of the things that you do well at Nomona. So uh, I, I hope you can improve this for the better because it's pretty terrible as a solution. As yeah. it is. Yeah, that's why we focus really on the human factor here. So we want to make the technology disappear. So you get this nice. natural dialogue, like you just talk to people, because we think that also improve quality, quality, but also improve the podcast in terms of being more natural. So, yep. but once again, Alex, thanks for having me. This has been a very, very great time talking to you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jonas. And thank you to all of our listeners. See you in the next episode. Bye.